how's everybody doing today? Good, good, good. Good to uh, be with uh, everybody in the room, all of our physical locations, those of you joining us online. Uh, today, we are continuing on in the series we started last week called Significant Other. And uh, so we're going to be walking through a passage of scripture in Genesis 2 and 3. So if you got a Bible, and I hope you brought one with you, go ahead and be turning to Genesis chapter 2. And while you're kind of finding that and, and getting settled, uh, something that I just want to kind of put on your radar. Uh, on Easter weekend a couple of weeks ago, I just uh, made the announcement that we're going to be relaunching our Northeast campus in the Fishers area in September of this year. We're super excited about it. And so uh, if you live on the Northeast side, if you know somebody who does, if you'd like to be a part of the gathering that's going to be launching this campus, we're going to begin uh, having gatherings beginning in mid-May. Uh, you can just simply text Northeast to 87221. I think we have a QR code as well that you can scan uh, to get all that information and just be looking for uh, more information in the days ahead. And then just church-wide, regardless of what campus you go to, or maybe you live out of state, just be praying for uh, the relaunch of this campus in September. Uh, as many of you already have been made aware of on social media, the announcement that was just made, uh, signage on the way in. Uh, today we're talking about um, this thing called sexual formation. I'm going to explain what I mean by that term here in a few minutes. And uh, um, a couple of things here. I had prepared way too much information than I had time enough to fit into one week. And so in, um, I was on Wednesday of this week, I made the decision to split this into two parts. So today we're gonna cover part one. And then uh, next weekend, we're gonna take a break from the series because it's Mother's Day, all right? Giving everybody a seven day heads up on that. And uh, uh, we're gonna have a very special guest. Uh, Maddie Wentz is gonna be with us. Carson Wentz, the NFL quarterback, his wife, uh, she's going to be joining me. And so we're going to have a conversation with Maddie. And uh, so you're going to want to come. And this would be a perfect weekend to invite just uh, friends and family who don't normally go to church uh, to come with you. And then the next week we'll resume and I'll uh, try to cover everything that kind of hit the cutting room floor this week in my prep, as well as the questions that I'm sure are going to come in from today's content. All right. So we'll hit that and then we'll kind of uh, cover out the, the rest of the series. Now, uh, once again, like if you're a parent and you've got kids under the age of 12, this is going to be somewhat sensitive to their ears. So we really encourage you to check out our kids' environments. But if you're a parent of kids 13 and older, like I highly encourage you to lean in on this and listen and take notes and have a series of intentional conversations in the plural, not just one, with your kids about this uh, content. Now, I understand that that could be a little bit awkward and uncomfortable, um, but can I just say, like, it could always be worse. You could be the one teaching this message, all right? <laughs> I have three teens listening to this message today. That's fun. All right, so pray for them and me. All right, so it could be worse. Now, here's the reason why this is so important. Some of you may be like, you know, well, you know, we've already got older teens and, you know, they already know. They already know. No, they know mechanics. They know how it works. They don't necessarily understand the emotional and spiritual ramifications of it. Now, last week, if you were here, I talked about the word discipleship, and I basically gave this definition that there is something or someone that is constantly shaping your beliefs, determining your perspective, and guiding your decisions. That's a pretty good explanation of discipleship. And so if you, as the parent, don't run point on having these conversations with your kids, someone or something else will, and likely already is. So it's really important that you run point on that. Now, uh, others of you, uh, maybe if you have a four or a five in your age or older, 
like my generation or older, here in the next few minutes, you might be like a little bit uncomfortable, kind of taken aback. Like, should we be talking about this in church in this straightforward of a way? And I would just simply say that we need to be talking about it in just as straightforward of a way as what society has been. Um, the late Howard Hendricks said it this way. He said, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. And so uh, remember this from Luke 4. I said this last week. This is the umbrella of the whole series. Jesus came to bring what? Good news. I will also take life, right? I'll accept both. <laughs> but Jesus came to bring good news. And I think oftentimes when it comes to sex, we, we think, well, he came to bring bad news. Like meaning he's grossed out by it or how could you or I'm so ashamed of you. But Jesus came to bring good news and not to condemn the world, but to save. So if you missed last week, the big idea of this series is that um, one of the richest and most rewarding experiences in life is the relationships that we have with other people. And I think that most of us would agree with that. Regardless of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, regardless of your profile on a Myers-Briggs or your Enneagram number, all of us crave social connection and we need it. In fact, the highlight reel of my life involves doing things I love with the people that I love. And I would guess that's the same for you as well. And the reason why is because we were made for connection. We were built for it. Like God is a relational God, as is demonstrated in the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he created us to be in relationship with him vertically and in relationship with one another horizontally. In fact, in the New Testament, the greatest command is to love God and love people. And as God was creating uh, the universe and the animal kingdom and Adam, uh, he stepped back and he goes, man, everything is good, 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 good. And the first and only thing that was not good was that man was alone. And so he created a significant other in the person of Eve for Adam. And she was like him in so many ways, but she was different and distinct from him in so many ways, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Like if you were just to place them side by side without any clothes on, you would see they were like each other, but they were so different than each other and that actually their bodies biologically fit together. However, we were never meant to fulfill one another. That role is only for God and God alone. And so when we try to find somebody who will fulfill us, you know, make me happy, meet all my expectations, make me a complete person, then we are actually placing upon them a load they were never designed to carry. And it's a huge burden and it ruins the relationship. It just crushes it. See, two half-empty people, that when they find each other, they do not make a hole. They make a large sucking sound. So that role can never be fulfilled by another human person. Now, don't get me wrong. A, a dating relationship, a romantic encounter, a marriage, like that is fantastic. Adam's response when he sees a very naked Eve is an ecstatic, at last, at last. Like she's like me, but she's so different than me. And thank you, God, for this gift of relationship. In fact, before Adam and Eve had anything else in their relationship, what they had was a deep and abiding Friendship, And that's where every romantic relationship, every marriage has got to be built on a rock solid friendship. Otherwise it will not stand the test of time and the storms of life. And my guess is that the words at last have leapt from your heart, not just in romance, but whenever you um, made a best friend. 
Like whenever you connected to somebody, whenever there was a chemistry, whenever you just clicked, there was a bond. Like we know those words at last in our hearts whenever it comes to a relationship with another person. So what went wrong? Well, Genesis 3 is what went wrong. Like Genesis 3 ruined it for all of us and have made our relationships so complex and painful. This is why one of the greatest things about life is, our, is relationships. One of the most complicated, painful things about life are relationships. And many of us can attest to that, whether in our past or something we're walking through right now. It is the argument with no easy resolution. It is the unexpected or repeated interpersonal conflict. Doesn't seem like there's any way around it. It's the betrayal, the breakup, or the backstab. And every single one of us likely know the pain of a broken heart. See, what Genesis 3 did was it introduced sin into the world. And sin is not just an action. Sin is a, like a noun, like it is a state that we are born into. And what sin did was it ruptured our relationships with God vertically and with others horizontally. And there is a reason why there is so much interpersonal conflict and so much division in the world. There's a reason why dating relationships can be so complicated. There's a reason why marriages are so painful and destructive that come to an end. And I'll get into this more, but for now, if you're taking notes, there's a reason why. What God designs, Satan always seeks to destroy. Or if I could say it this way, when God initiated a marriage, Satan initiated a war. And he's been waging war ever since, attacking the very essence of how we image God. And here's what I mean. Marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. So a contract is what I have with my local gym, right? Like I'll go to this gym, you know, just as long as they have the equipment and the classes that I want, but as soon as they don't, then I'm out. I'm gonna break the contract. A contract is what I have with Costco, right? As long as you carry the huge vat of ketchup that I wanna buy in bulk, I'll continue to pay those annual fees, but, in, but you discontinue it, then I'm out. Like a contract is like, if you keep your end of the bargain, I'll keep my end of the bargain. Marriage is a covenant, very different thing. It's a promise that we make and it is meant to mirror the covenant that God has made with us in and through Jesus. So the Bible speaks in language of Jesus being the groom and the big C church, which you and I are part of, is the bride who he lays his life down for. And we keep cheating on him. We keep breaking the covenant with our affair with sin. What I need you to know about Satan is that Satan is not some Will Ferrell character from Saturday Night Live running around in a red suit with a pitchfork, just running, you know, a bunch of mischief and practical jokes. No, he is much more sinister than that. He is a deceiver. He's an accuser. And the thing that I really need you to know is that he is a counterfeit. He takes the good gifts that God has given us and he counterfeits them and he makes them look really, really good only to find that they're really, really bad. This last week I was in a meeting, my son was FaceTiming me and I, didn't, I couldn't get it. And so uh, later he texts me and he, uh, he was fishing. We, we have a, a, a stocked pond behind our house. I stocked it in 2016. So the bass are getting pretty big. And he texted me a picture of a bass that he caught. He's like, dad, check out the size of this bass. And I texted back to him and said, well, what'd you catch it on? 
And so he texted like this lure, like our conversations are titillating, all right? It's just amazing. And so he texted me back like this lure, this, this fake bait. And, and it's one of those like really good ones. It looks like a fish. Like when, you, when you're reeling it in through the water, it looks like a real fish. You can't see the hook or anything. And I always feel bad for the fish that bite on that thing. Cause you know, they're like, oh man, this is gonna be a good meal. Chomp, uh, hook in the mouth. And they get pulled out of the water. Like in the same way, Satan has created bait. He's been doing this for thousands of years, for centuries. He's much, much better at it than you are. And it looks real. It looks like the right thing, but it's a counterfeit. And that's what he does. And so he takes the good gifts of God, primarily uh, sex being one of them. This is his favorite way to counterfeit the good gifts of God. And it causes us an incredible amount of confusion, harm, and pain. And I'm gonna get into this more specifically, but when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about when it comes to sex, like how do we view it? Like what is it for uh, and when do we practice it? When, how, and where? And what I just wanna ask you to do here in just the next few moments together, like if at any point in the message, you find yourself like a little bit uncomfortable, like squirming in your seat, uh, bristling a little bit, pushing back, which by the way, is totally okay. That's totally fine. But if you find yourself doing that, can I just ask you to get real curious about that? Can I just ask you to ask yourself like, why, why, why am I having this sort of reaction to it? See, this has massive implications for our relationships. If you were here last week, I introduced uh, to you C.S. Lewis's concept of the four loves. See, the bad downside of love in the, human, uh, in the English language is that we only have one word for it. Love, and we use it for all kinds of things. So we say things like, I love my spouse. I love my family. I love my kids. I love corn dogs. We're like, well, that seems like you're using the same word. And C.S. Lewis breaks it down. He says, the words for love are philia, which is friendship, storge, which is nostalgia, uh, eros, which is erotic, and agape, which is sacrificial. Now, I'll just keep this up for, for just a minute here. That um, most of the time, when it comes to who we're attracted to physically. When it comes to romance and dating relationships and marriage, like, would you not agree that there's a, a lot of emphasis, like we're looking at eros a lot. Like there's almost like an overemphasis on the erotic part of love at the detriment of the other loves. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I will never say that physical attraction isn't important. It is. Physical attraction is important, but it isn't everything. Like it can't be everything. Primarily because bodies change. I didn't think I was gonna get an amen on that. All right, it's like, <laughs> but, but like, you know that they do. Like if you don't believe me, just pull out a picture of yourself from 20 years ago and You'll, you'll see it. Now, now here's the thing is that I'm not talking about you guys, right? This is the best looking church on the planet. You guys are aging like a fine wine, right? Way to go. I'm talking about everybody else, all right? Like everybody else, like, like bodies physically, they just change. That's the reason why in the vows, sickness and in health. You know, we gain weight, we lose weight. We, we, we age, we, we, our bodies change. So physical attraction is important. It can't be everything. Now, here's the thing. I don't think I told you anything you don't already know. I think that all of us know this, but it's so easy to overlook this like when we're in the heat of the moment. Like when we're like, you know, maybe you're like get into your later half of your 20s, early 30s or beyond. And you're like, man, like I really want to be with somebody. And so it's easy to maybe you, you've got a, like a, 
like a catch in your spirit, maybe a little bit of a red flag about somebody's character issues or their spiritual maturity, but I'm gonna overlook that because they're hot for now. That's the thing. And so here's the thing is that for many of us, we're like, you know, gosh, I don't know. Like it feels like to me, like maybe time is kind of running out and maybe this is the best that I can do. And so I'm gonna overlook this character. Can I just say, I'm gonna say this to somebody, gonna save them a lot of heartache. To young ladies, young women or young men right now, you're in a dating relationship and you got this catch in your spirit. Please do not marry a project. You're meant to marry a person, not your homework. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be too harsh about somebody. We all have rough edges. We are all a work in progress. I totally get that. I'm talking about overlooking somebody's character issues. I'm talking about overlooking somebody that is a spiritual mismatch for you. See, here's what I'm trying to say. God designed sex as a gift, but because of the sinful nature that exists in all of us, sex has become one of the greatest sources of pain in our relationships and marriages causing so much disillusionment. Why is that? And what do we do about it? So last week, let me just kind of recap a verse that we walked through last week, chapter two, verse 18. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And so uh, Adam goes into a deep sleep. God pulls a rib out of his side. He creates a woman in the person of Eve. Now let's pick this up in verse 24. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother. All right, so all the dads and the daughters in the room, this is where you need to pay attention. When it comes to a potential suitor for your daughter, one of the main things is, has he left mom and dad? <laughs> right, like, like that's pretty big, right? Like, so I'm talking like he's moved out of the basement. He actually has a job. He's not playing Call of Duty all day, all right? He's left mom and dad um, financially, and um, the address, all right? And is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. That's a profound sentence. Back in chapter one, verse 28, I said this last week, that the very first command that God gave to us was be fruitful and multiply. So it all sounds great. So what went wrong? Chapter three. So let's walk through it together. Verse one, it says the serpent, so this is Satan disguised, was the shrewdest, meaning he is more cunning. He is more crafty than anything else. Of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say? Now I'm gonna keep saying this and bringing it back up till I'm blue in the face, till the end of my ministry days with you at Traders Point. I'm gonna keep bringing this up, that this is the primary question that he deceives us with over and over and over again. Did God really say? Here's how we say it today. Well, the Bible meant that then, doesn't mean it now. Like, oh, I know it said it then, but that's old fashioned. And, and you know, it's been interpreted a bunch of times. And so we can't really trust it. We are constantly trying to edit the words of our creator to really, because we just want it to fit the life we want to live. And so Satan is like, hey man, did God really say? And then he actually, what he does is he'll, he'll give you just enough of the truth that sounds good, but then he twists it. And that's what he does with Eve. You must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden. And notice her response, verse two. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. So she noticed the deception right away. Good for Eve. She saw it. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. 
God said, I love this. She comes right back with clarity around the words of God, which by the way, if you fast forward to the gospels, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, Satan came at him. And how did Jesus defend the temptation? God said, the word of God said, so, so he clarified that. And then she clarifies it. You must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Now, Satan doesn't just go, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. He's not like, oh, thanks for clarifying. You know, I did, you know it's not like he, he gets called out and then he shrinks away. No, what he does is he comes back with a haymaker and he always does. And we see it in verse four. You won't die. Notice like the exasperation, like I'm sure that he made her feel this big. He just made her feel stupid. Like you're not gonna die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as you eat it and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Verse six, the woman was convinced. So she, so she saw that the tree was beautiful. No doubt that it was. And its fruit looked delicious. No doubt that it was. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her. No, I, well, I thought he was, what, up until this point, I thought she was alone. So, so we, what we see here is that Adam was with her, but he was checked out. Like, where was he? I don't know, on the uh, couch, drinking a beer, watching the game. Where we usually are, right? So like he, was, he was there, but he, he wasn't there, which means that the, um, the sin of men in general, and I would put myself in this list because I'm guilty of it. I see it all over my life and I don't like it. The sin of a man is passivity and abdication. And it gets rooted all the way back to our great, great, great grandfather, Adam. So what that, this is the reason why roughly 65% of those who attend our church are women and roughly 65% of those who serve are women. And it's the reason why now, why, why your boyfriend or your husband is sitting in this message, a really important message, and he's on his phone playing games. It's passivity and it's abdication. He was there, but he wasn't there. And he eats it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Verse eight, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they hid. And that's what we always do. And that's what we've always done when it comes to sexual sin. We hide it and we hide from God. They hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord God called to a man, where are you? Uh, this is not Marco Polo. This is not hide and seek. Like God, it's not that God didn't know where they were. He knew exactly where they were. God was actually acknowledging the question that something had ruptured the relationship. They were in communion. Now they were not. Verse 10, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. He's trying to blame it on his naked body. Verse 11, well, who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. <laughs> he just threw her completely under the bus. And he's been doing it ever since. This is, there's a reason why there's a battle of the sexes. This goes all the way back to our great-great-grandparents. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And she said, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. There's a lot here. 
There's a lot about it that's really beautiful. There's a lot about it that's so tragic and painful. And it explains so much of why our understanding of and practice with human sexuality is so complex and causes us so much pain. There's a reason why it's the root of so many issues in our relationships and even in our own personal shame and the way that we see ourselves. So here's what I wanna do in the remainder of our time is I just wanna get real curious about it. And I just wanna ask a few questions. Like, so what is it? How do we view it? What went wrong? And how should we respond? And so I think that we need to start here. All right, if you're taking notes, I wanna start here, is that God designed sex, like he designed it. Like we didn't discover sex behind God's back. You know, he wasn't like strolling through the garden one evening. He's like, oh, I wonder where Adam and Eve are. They kind of disappeared on me. And all of a sudden he heard some strange moaning sounds behind the tree and he's like, what are you guys doing? I can't unsee that. You know, that's, that's not what went down. And I think that for many of us, whether you grew up in church or not, maybe some of you grew up in a church, maybe a lot of like what I did, like a lot of purity culture. Maybe you grew up outside of church. Maybe you just had some weird, you know, Christian college roommates or whatever. And so you just sort of had the impression that God is grossed out by it, that he's ashamed of it. And that like, we should just feel really, really bad about ever thinking about it. And you should never like engage in it. It's like really, really gross. Like even after marriage, like if you grew up in purity culture, here, and I know that a lot of purity culture meant well, but what it did was it created the opposite. Instead, like you, you, you were faced with these really, really strong um, temptations and urges in your body and you're trying to white knuckle it. And they're like, you need to stay pure. And uh, then you fell. And so you didn't think that it was a safe enough environment to be vulnerable with that and confess it because you saw what people did and said about those who did. So, so you hid it and you just carried the shame. For some of you young ladies, you were told it's, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. Wedding night, good. And it's like this hard right turn. And it's like so hard to like begin to re wrap your brain around that. And it's created significant intimacy issues with your spouse. Or maybe you grew up in a church that just stayed silent on it while society continued to disciple you in it, which is part of the reason why we're in the predicament that we are, we're in. Because as Christians, we just don't have a, a way to engage in the conversation without sounding old fashioned and like a prude. And none of us want to sound that way. So what is it? What did God design it for? Well, three things, if you're taking notes. Number one, he designed it to consummate the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. It is a supernatural fusion where two become one. There's this sort of like mysterious, supernatural sacredness to it. And there's a reason why God asks us to not um, engage in it until after the covenant has been made, because it is part of the way in which we reflect the covenant that has been made. So in, in a, it's not a perfect analogy, but in a similar way, even just at Easter, like a number of you, you gave your life to Christ, you, know, you confessed your sins, you repented of it, Jesus is Lord and Savior. And then you were, you did something physical. You did something tangible to demonstrate that inward connection. And sex is very similar in that, is that you've made promises to each other. I'm gonna, I'm gonna always be there for you. And then you, uh, then you consummate that internal decision you've made through a very physical act. It is a gift that God gives to us that we then give to another person that we've made promises to. It is not a selfish act in which I demand something to have my needs fulfilled, but a selfless one where I'm actually looking to fulfill the needs of another. I'm not operating out of expectation, but out of consideration. 
And it's really important that we get the four loves in order. What I mean by that is I'm not going to eros you until there is philia and agape demonstrated love. Number two, it is designed to bring about reproduction in the start of a family. And I think it's just kind of a no-brainer. Like we understand that. Like the first command, be fruitful and multiply. Number three, for our pleasure and enjoyment. And I think sometimes we, we miss this. I mean, just think about all the ways that God could have created for us to reproduce and have a family. I mean, I would imagine, like just imagine with me, the week of creation, you know, the Trinity sends out an email to all the angels. Hey man, like pile in the boardroom. Like we got one last thing that we got to come up with. I need to hear everybody's ideas. Like we've made creation. We got to figure out a way for Adam and Eve to express their bond to one another and to reproduce. And there's no bad ideas here. I need to hear everybody's ideas. You know, and the Holy Spirit grabs the marker. He's up on the whiteboard, you know, come on, let me hear the ideas. You know, one of the angels is like, oh, I think I got one. Like what if we sprayed water on Eve's back and she developed a boil and uh, after nine months, a baby popped out. And I'm like, uh, okay, all right. Uh, let's save that idea for the 1980s movies, Gremlins. Okay. Um, do we have any other ideas here? And all of a sudden God stands up and he walks over. He's like, I got one. You guys, this is gonna blow your mind. Like you've seen some amazing things this last week that I've created, but I've got the best idea ever. And one of the angels on the front row is like, what is it, God? Is it another rainbow? Like, is it, a, is it a pony, God? And he's like, no, 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 far better than that. Give me the marker. And he starts drawing diagrams on the board and the angel's eyes are like this big around. <laughs> like God designed, the Hebrew word is dode. And it's the mingling of souls. And he designed it as a way for us to express a bond and connect. And I sometimes wonder if God looks at what society has done with sex and how we sort of twisted and perverted it. And he's like really sort of upset by that. He's like, hey man, like this is my idea. Like I designed this. Like there's some major copyright infringements going on. And whoever designs it gets to define it. God says, like, man, I know how it works best. It belongs to me. Sex is a divine design. And so I think that anytime that we hear God's word warn us about sexual immorality, that is not God trying to ruin our fun. That is God saying, hey, man, don't hurt yourself. And please don't hurt yourself. Like, this is a really, really powerful thing. It's kind of like a manufacturer's warning label on a product. You know those? Like I've got a uh, Husqvarna chainsaw. One of my favorite things to do is just to go out and clear brush. This is something really therapeutic about it. And all over the chainsaw are all these manufacturers' warnings. And honestly, I'm really appreciative of them. You, you know one of the main ones that's on there? Don't stop chain with hand. <laughs> like I'm really, I think I would have figured that one out, but I'm really grateful that somebody took the time to show. And I don't read the, the warning labels and go, man, you're just trying to ruin my fun. No, this is saying, no, I don't want you to hurt yourself. God isn't trying to dampen your sex life. He's trying to maximize it. And so I just want us to get real curious about what his plan is. Here's why. Because ours isn't working. If we reduce sex to behaviors and attraction or something that we link to our very identity, we are setting ourselves up for pain in our relationships. Our society is so focused on technique and behaviors around. You go to Meyer and you're walking through the cashier line, you see the magazine covers and it's three ways to rock his world. 
you know, five ways to just drive her crazy. And it's just like, it's all technique, but they don't actually talk about the emotion and the spiritual weightiness of it. Contrary to what you may have heard, seen, and experienced, sex is not just physical, it's spiritual. And we are obsessed with it in our culture. We use it to sell everything from cheeseburgers to toothpaste. And society will say, well, it's a really, really strong desire that cannot be controlled. So it must be satisfied. And one of the things that the sexual revolution ideology that came out of the 1960s or so, what it did was it produced this generally accepted understanding in society that sex is either one of two extremes. Number one, it's either like no big deal. Like, hey man, like it's no big deal. Like just do whatever you want with whoever you want, just as long as it is consensual, which by the way, that word consensual is rapidly being redefined. And so it was like, hey man, as long as it's consensual, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it's a desire like anything else. It's a natural, physical, biological appetite. And just like any other appetite. So you get hungry, you eat. You get thirsty, you drink. You get horny, you have sex or you masturbate. No big deal. Or we run to the other side. It's a really huge deal. And your whole identity should be wrapped up and rooted in your sexual appetites and desires. And God never meant it to be that way. So non-emotional hookup culture is the norm. Non-traditional expressions of sex and gender aren't just accepted, but celebrated and encouraged. Modesty is repressive and oppressive. And I'm not just talking about the young ladies, but I'm also talking about the guys. Young people are given the impression that when you enter into a dating relationship, it should be as physical as possible, as soon as possible, leading them to think that they actually have deeper feelings than what they really do, which makes breakups especially painful because of the bond that has already taken place sexually. So the best way to deal with the pain of detachment is to attach physically to someone else as soon as you can, leading to broken heart after broken heart after broken heart, which leads to a whole bunch of scarring and baggage. And by the time you do meet somebody that you're ready to walk the aisle with, your marriage starts in a deficit. That's what society has given us. Nancy Piercy, uh, in her book, Love Thy Body, which I highly recommend, you put that in your Amazon box and purchase it today. Uh, Nancy, Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. She mentions how sex is described on children's network television. It's a group of kids that they put in together and they're actually telling these kids what sex is. Here's what they say. Sexual relations, something done by two adults to give each other pleasure, period. No mention of marriage, no mention of a covenant, no mention of family or love, no hint that it has a richer purpose other than immediate gratification. In the book, Adam and Eve, After the Pill, the sexual revolution was described this way. The destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. You run that out and eventually nothing, there's nothing really sacred or special about any of it. And none of this is a new idea. All this goes way back. There was the word for this called dualism. And it was basically the separation of the spirit from the body. We don't necessarily use that term dualism a lot nowadays. Here's how culture says it. We're just having fun. We're just having fun. It's just biology. But listen to me, when you separate spirituality from sexuality, it always creates a wound, even if you're not consciously aware of it in the moment. 
I cannot recommend the movie, but the movie Vanilla Sky from years ago, Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, and that their characters get involved and like he distances himself, breaks up with her. She's really distraught over it. And in this moment of an emotional outburst, Cameron Diaz's character says this to Tom Cruise's character. When you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise even if you don't. And the more broken things get, the more pain and chaos that comes from sexual sin in society, the more clear it becomes God knows what he's talking about. And sociology is beginning to catch up to theology and beginning to see it. What I mean by that is uh, over the last several months, as I've been just preparing for this series, I've come across a number of articles in the Washington Post and in Time Magazine, which by the way, are not necessarily written from a Jesus-centered perspective. And they're saying a lot of the same things that it says in the New Testament. Find it fascinating. Just in the name of science and biology. In fact, I want to read just a portion of one article uh, to you. Uh, this was from March 24th, 2022. So just like six weeks ago, uh, Rethinking Sex. Let me just read a portion of the article. Christine Emba has a radical proposition. What if there's no such thing as casual sex? In her new book, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, Emma suggests that sex itself is inherently not casual. It's not just a physical interaction, even if we've tried to internalize the modern assumption that sex is like any other social activity. Emba argues that sex involves the spirit as well as the body, and that the sexual liberation, which promised lots of fun, no strings, easy to access, consensual sex, has actually left us miserable. Emba, a columnist for the Washington Post, believes that thinking about sex and our sexual partners casually and commoditizing them on dating apps has created a bleak romantic landscape. Too many people, she writes, are having too much of the kind of sex that saps the spirit and makes us feel less human, not more, sex that leaves us detached, disillusioned, or just dissatisfied. Even if we want to think of sex as something that can be casual, the act of being naked and entwined is inherently vulnerable and unique, she argues. She writes that sex implicates the human person and thus our inherent human dignity, and we should treat this act and our partners accordingly. Or you could read the New Testament. <laughs> God knew this all along. Sex isn't just casual. Sex is purposeful. And the term casual sex came about in our history when we disconnected it from three things. First of all, when we disconnected it from procreation. Throughout most of history, you could not think of sex with someone without the possibility of long-term responsibility. But as recently as 1972, that was when single people could use contraception. We disconnected it from that. Sex became casual. Uh, second thing, disconnected it from emotion and relationship. The fallout of hookup culture is pretty self-evident. Increasingly, there's a debate around what the term consensual is, meaning that at the time he thought it was, she didn't think it was, but she didn't say anything for any number of reasons. She was intimidated, thought she was in love, imbalance of power, whatever. Later came to realize, no, that actually wasn't consensual. This is what's behind the Me Too movement. Increasing numbers of sexual harassment charges, human trafficking, abuse, rape, incest, and unwanted pregnancy. All that came after we disconnected it from emotion and relationship. Third thing, we disconnected it from people. Well, you don't even need a person. We just traded a bond with a spouse to a bond with a picture or a screen. And increasingly, a culture that grows up with this just kind of says, well, it's sort of easier to turn this into a selfish act that I kind of do to kind of meet my own desires rather than tending to the emotional, physical needs of another. And so that's what I've trained myself in. And then you meet somebody and you get married and it's a totally foreign concept to actually put their needs ahead of your own. 
Casual sex just leads to casualties. Lastly, sex points to the story we all long for. We all long to be fully known and fully accepted for who we are. We all long for connection, vulnerability, and love. I want you to know that sin is love turned in on itself. The Bible's definition of love is love channeled selflessly towards others, like what Jesus did for us on a cross. And we want to have, as Christians, the highest view of sex. Do you know that statistically nowadays, I just saw this recently, they took a poll, they were wanting to determine which groups of people are having the best sex. And what they found was it wasn't the young people that are just kind of run around one night stands at nightclubs. It's actually committed Christian couples in a covenant relationship who attend church regularly. They're having the best sex. Go figure. Like that's what's happening. Like some of you are like, are we allowed to clap for that? I, uh... So I'm going to say this, you know, in a couple of weeks, man, when it comes to marriage, they should be Pentecostal. Lots of tongues and laying on hands. All right. So we'll say that. So, so listen, like so some of you, you're like, I just found my church. Like this is, this is my first weekend. I'm coming back. All right. So, so listen, like Adam and Eve, like they were, they were in the garden and they were naked and not ashamed. Like we get naked. We're still ashamed. Even in a marriage, like turn off the lights before we do this, right? It's like, it's like we're hiding because of rejection. And the gospel, the gospel is this. God sees you. He knows you fully for who you are. And he receives and he embraces you in Jesus Christ. And there is acceptance and grace for you, not condemnation, rejection, and shame. And how we view this is a type of formation. And what I mean by that is most of the time we sort of ask the question, like, well, what am I allowed to do? And I'm, I'm actually anticipating that question that we'll kind of get to in a couple of weeks, but many, like, especially like dating couples, like, what are we, or like, what are we allowed to do anyway? Like in, in translation, what's the line? Cause we want to go right up to it. So it's like, is it first base? Is it second base? Is it third base? Like, like, what are we allowed to do? The greater question is this, who am I becoming by what I do? That's the greater question. So you got to ask yourself, like, who do I, who am I becoming? Who do I want to, is this act, is this thing, is it helping me be formed more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus or deformed away from it? Sex is like nuclear energy. So if you came to me and you're like, hey, Aaron, are you pro-energy? The answer is not yes or no. The answer is where? Like in a uh, confined area, nuclear energy can bring light and life to a whole city. You get it outside of that, you got Chernobyl all over again. It is a meltdown. The same is true when it comes to sex. So I want to be really, really clear. The Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is pro-sex within boundaries where it will bring blessings and not pain. And the sexual revolution ideology of the past 60, 70 years or so, what it did was it encouraged and even promised more liberation and fulfillment by walking away from God's design. But the exact opposite is happening and now science is catching up. I'll give you one example. The research on oxytocin and vasopressin, the two chemicals released by our body during sex that bring the attachment system online and cause our body to cause us to bond to another person. Now it seems the more sexual partners you have, the less capacity your body has for intimacy. Translation, God doesn't want to hinder your sex life. He wants to maximize it. But we keep biting on the counterfeit. 
and being deceived by the deceiver. And we were like, I'm not quite sure that I can trust what God says in this area. Or we look at everyone else that kind of seems to be having an amazing sex life on social media and stuff. And we're just like, well, I, should, I just feel, should do it this way. Or it's just hard to live upstream. Or maybe you're getting pressured by a girlfriend or boyfriend right now. And you're just like, it's just really, really hard. But we don't want to trade the counterfeit for the real thing. I'm reminded of that classic uh, movie. I think it's from the 1990s with Ben Stiller, Zoolander, right? And if I like introduce a whole new generation to this movie today, then my task has been done, right? And uh, he's like, he plays like this male model and he wants to give back to the community. And if you haven't seen it and, and he's like, I want to build a center for kids who don't read good and who want to do other good stuff too. All right. And so they reveal to him the model of what they're going to build. And he mistakes the model for the real thing. And he's like, what is this? A center for ants? <laughs> and, um, Every time we think romance and sexual pursuits will make our lives complete, every time we go against the design and the designer, we do the same thing. We mistake the model for the real thing. Here's how God's word puts it in Romans 1.25. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created. At the top of that list would be sex. We worship sex in our culture. Instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. And as a result of that, which we're all guilty of, we are all sexually broken. Every single one of us. We're sexually broken by the things that we've thought, by the things that we've done, and the things that have been done to us. Now here's the manufacturer's warning label on sex. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, just a fancy word for growing to look like Jesus, that you should avoid sexual immorality, don't hurt yourself, that each of you should learn to control your body, meaning there's gonna be urges that war against what God has asked you to do in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, which is where it always leads. We see that in society today. The word lust in the Greek is porneia. Sounds familiar because where we get our word pornography. What it means is any sexual activity in mind, eyes, or body outside of a biblically defined marriage between a husband and a wife who have made a covenant with one another. The term sexual immorality is a junk drawer term. Basically any sexual activity outside of the Genesis 2 ideal. So this brings us back to the question, like, well, what is that exactly? Like, what are we allowed to do, not allowed to do? What is sexual immorality? Well, it is, if we were to make a list, sexual intercourse before marriage, same-sex sex, polygamy, polyamory, adultery, swingers, and open relationships. Some of you are like, hey, man, my spouse is totally okay with this. We have an open relationship. No, you are just co-conspirators in the adultery. Oral sex, over-the-clothes groping, dry humping, emotional fantasizing, or masturbating to anybody other than your spouse, lust of the eyes, and porn. Now, there's some of you right now, maybe, who are going, you hear that whole list, you're kind of running through it, and you're like, okay, I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Like, I don't even know what dry humping is. <laughs> I don't know if the sign language lady is doing her thing. I, I was, it's like, I don't know. Like, I, I'm curious what dry humping is in sign. I, I, I really don't want to know. I'm just, I would rather imagine. All right, I, let me come up with my own. All right, that, I'm just trying to figure out how many more times I can say dry hump in a sermon. That's, this, is, this is fun. 
So for those of you who are going, like, you look at that list and you're like, I oh, haven't done that, haven't done that. No, I haven't done it. Been a long time, right? You're kind of running through the list. I think I'm good, I think I'm good, right? Understand that Jesus said that if you've ever looked with lust at somebody, you're guilty of all of it. So what that means is that all of us over the age of 13 or so, like we're all in the same boat. We are all guilty of sexual sin. In fact, right now, just to make this point, um, if you saw yourself in that list at all, across all of our campuses, just raise up your hand and keep it up and I'll go first. I'm on the list. Like just raise up your hand, keep it up, keep it up long enough. Like we're taking a few names. No, I'm just joking. No, don't just keep your, keep your hand up. Like keep your hand up. Like, and now just look around the room. The, the people with the hands up are all the sexually immoral. Everybody with their hands down are the liars. Right? So we're all in the same boat. And I know like some of you that like you just came to church for the first time and you're kind of here like, man, what in the world? Like I just want, I want this to be so clear right now. Like we are not all the sexually pure people trying to tell you how to be sexually pure like us. There is only one sexually pure person. His name is Jesus. And he makes all of us pure through his forgiveness and his grace that he purchased for us on a cross. He shed his blood for you to have it. And it's really good news. Jesus came to bring good news. And it's challenging to be a pastor in this society and culture. I'm not bemoaning it. There's lots of blessings too. But I increasingly receive pressure from many who want me to affirm certain sexual desires because somebody they're related to is maybe going through something or maybe all in the name of love. And I wanna be compassionately clear. I cannot call something right that God so clearly calls wrong or something wrong that God calls right. I won't affirm the counterfeit, not because I don't love you, but precisely because I do. I'm not gonna edit the words of the creator because I'm concerned what the creation might think. And some of you, Some of you like don't like you're you're upset with me because I said that and you're like you know well this isn't the church for me and I'm out and I grieve that I respect it but I grieve it can I just ask you to get real curious about why you feel that strongly there's one of two reasons either I offended you and I was too abrasive and I went over the line which maybe that's possible if that is the case then I'm glad to apologize or that might be conviction and conviction is really uncomfortable. And I've been doing this long enough to have people walk out of our church, say, I'm never coming back. They flip me the bird on the way out, like forget you. Only four or five years later to circle back around and say, hey, can I tell you what God's been doing in my life? So I would imagine this has stirred up all kinds of interesting questions for you. And I wanna hear them, here's why. I, I wanna pastor you through this. Like, I don't wanna just like preach a message and just say, well, you know, we covered it. Like, I wanna pastor you through this. So if you've got questions, you can just simply text the word relationships to 87221. I wanna just kind of hear how this is hitting you. Like, what are you wrestling with? What does God's word say about these issues? And um, two weeks from now, as I we're kind of, I'm trying to cover everything that hit the cutting room floor, I'll try to hit as many of those as I possibly can. Now, others of you, you're nailed to your seat right now because of what we've talked about over the last 40 minutes. And you're really humbled and you're really broken. And maybe there's just this sense of dread that has fallen over you. Maybe it's because you're like, oh, I never heard this before. Or maybe you're like, oh, I heard this before, but I rejected it and ran away from it. I want you to know that not only is Satan a deceiver and a counterfeit, he is an accuser. 
So what that means is like right now, he's accusing you right now. He's flashing images in your head of things that you've done sexually in your past. And some of you are thinking right now, like, man, I just feel like such a failure in this area of my life. Like I'm caught up right now. Like this isn't something in the past. Like this is last night. Like I'm caught up in this like addiction, this, this practice, this behavior, this thing. Like I'm here with my girlfriend and my boyfriend and we are so clearly on the other side of the line and not living in God's design. And you get this question right now. Like would God ever receive me and I just want you to look at me right now. The answer is unequivocally, yes. Yes, he would. Jesus has so much compassion for those who are struggling with sexual sin. He has an incredible amount of compassion because the Bible says that Jesus is like us, but he, he faced every temptation that we face, but he never sinned. And some of us may be like, well, that's not fair. He was fully God. No, no, no. He was fully God and man which means that he was likely attracted to the form of a beautiful woman and he never sinned. Therefore, he knows how strong of a desire that is. And Jesus never scolds, he never shames, he never casts out any sexual sinner, not one time, not once. In fact, um, one time he's traveling through a part of town that he shouldn't have been traveling through and he sees a woman that he shouldn't have been talking to in public and he's like, nope, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna talk to her because he knew what she was going through five scars on her broken heart. She'd had five previous husbands. She was shacking up with somebody who wasn't her husband. And Jesus knew the reason why wasn't because she was a sex addict. The reason why was because she was thirsty. She was looking to this other man to fulfill what only God could. And so Jesus said, I can give you water that'll never make you thirst again. And she jumped at it. And Jesus said, go and leave your life of sin. And she went back to the town and she ran around. And she goes, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. It's good news. I don't know about you guys, but if there was somebody backstage who knew everything that I've ever did, I'm like, stay away from them. <laughs> I don't want you to know that's bad news. But she saw it as good. And she could be vulnerable and real. One time there was a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. Could you imagine how embarrassing and shameful that would have been? But it was a trap. Namely, I know that because it was the religious leaders who brought her out. And where was the man? Takes two to tango. And he, they pull her out, they throw her out in the crowd, and they're judging her and they're scolding. They want to know what Jesus would do. And Jesus bends down and he draws in the dirt. And I don't know if he was writing anything legible or not, but I think what he was doing is he was trying to draw their attention away from the woman and he was drawing a wedge between their accusations and her, the daughter of the king. And Jesus will draw a wedge between your shame, your sin, your accusations, and that which is accusing you as well. And you can find and experience his mercy and his grace and new life. He would love to do that for you. And he's ready to offer that to you today. I'm fully convinced. I've had a number of people come up to me and like, hey man, are you nervous to preach this sermon? Or man, you were so bold or were you? And honestly, like, I don't feel that scared to preach on subjects like this. I feel like the greater the level of potential pushback, the greater the level of discomfort, that's where God really works. And I believe somebody's life is gonna change today. I believe somebody's relationship is gonna, I believe that there's gonna be new relationships, new dating relationships that are gonna spring up out of this message. You're gonna look down the aisle and you're gonna see somebody single and you're gonna be like, yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I, believe, I believe maybe there could be some immediate pain where a relationship is gonna have to break up. Maybe not forever, but maybe for now. And it'll actually be the best thing for you. 
There's gonna be some marriages that are healed. There's gonna be some people who are gonna take the bait out of their mouth and say, I'd rather have the real thing. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for the gift of sexual intimacy. Forgive us where we have traded the real thing for a counterfeit. God, I pray that you give us spiritual eyes to see it and true compassion and love to love people to it. Father, I pray that if there's anybody ready to give their life to you, that they would do that right now, like right now. Like that they would feel the power of your presence in their life and that something radically would shift in their heart, soul, and mind. God, I pray that you would rescue and redeem marriages. I pray that you would give hope to single people. I pray that you would give that young man who's wrestling with sexual addiction and porn the freedom to be unleashed from it by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you need prayer as we sing, you come right down front and receive prayer. Would you stand as we sing together?